This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, July 23, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. The Jones Act has been on the books for more than 100 years, and in that time, it's made it harder to ship goods, raised the prices on all manner of things, including shipping itself, and put American producers and consumers at disadvantages. The Cato Institute has published a new book detailing the costs of this largely unexamined law, The Case Against the Jones Act. Its editors are Cato's Colin Grabo and Inu Monik. How long have we had uh, what is known as the Jones Act? Well, the Jones Act has been in place since June 5th, 1920. So we reached the 100-year uh, mark last month. Um, but laws very similar to the Jones Act have been in place since 1789, basically since the beginning of this country. So while the Jones Act is, um, is, is commonly viewed as being 100 years old, you can properly, uh, I think, view it as, as, as being far older than that and dating back to the founding of this country. So th- the way I look at it, you know, this is not just a 100-year-old law. This is a law that is far more outdated and archaic even than what many people commonly suspect. And uh, Inu, why was this? Why was this adopted? Um, you know, if we had similar laws on the books uh, before 1920, why was this law passed? Well, it's a really interesting story about some local protectionism in the Seattle area, where Senator Wesley Jones of Washington decided that he needed to increase competition of the shipbuilding industry. That was his hope, anyways, uh, by cutting out the railroad industry. And so his entire idea behind this was to help the protection of shipping interests uh, cut out what was happening in terms of shipping being rerouted through Canada uh, and to cut out that uh, route for them completely so that the U.S. shippers would actually have the advantage of of basically carrying U.S. cargo. Um, And so that's where it started. And it's sort of uh, perpetuated since then and and has been built upon uh, in, in many different ways. So where have what have we seen in terms of the relative proportion of cargo carried by the ships that meet all of the crazy requirements of this law? I think what's interesting is that the United States is in many ways a, a maritime country. You know, many of our states uh, ocean, uh, border on the on the ocean or on the Great Lakes. Of course, we have Hawaii and Alaska that are non-contiguous. They are very much dependent on ocean transport. Uh, we have the the, the Mississippi rivers, uh, river and, and other inland rivers. And yet, for all of that, uh, ships carry only two percent of all cargo in the United States. If you add in uh, smaller crafts such as barges that ply our inland waterways, we're up to a total of 6%. Uh, for perspective, in the European Union, um, coastal shipping accounts for 40% of cargo transport. Now, part of that reflects, of course, differing geographies. Uh, Europe lends itself more to, to, to waterborne transport. But uh, again, the United States, we have many of our major cities along our oceans, it, it lends itself very much to waterborne transport, and yet uh, we use any other form of transport, such as rail or trucks. People actively avoid shipping by water because it is so insanely expensive. How hard is it to get data on this? I know that um, you might ha- you have expressed some issues with uh, getting access to data that would really tell the tale of the costs and benefits of the Jones Act. 
So great question. When we first started the project on Jones Act reform, Colin and I thought, hey, this law has been around for 100 years. There's going to be a ton of research on this, tons of analysis. Uh, we're just going to add to that body of literature. And when we started to dig, we found that there was really a, a dearth of information analysis on this topic. And that was really surprising, given the fact that this is a 100-year-old law. Why has it been in place for this long without some clear understanding of its costs and its benefits? So, for instance, if you look at the federal government's reports on the Jones Act, the last economic impact assessment was done in 2002. Uh, the Government Accountability Office has not studied the Jones Act's impact on Alaska since 1988. And the government examination of the law's implications for Hawaii has never been undertaken. Now, that should raise some serious red flags. And the other problem we encountered, which we were really surprised about, was the fact that there's a lack of transparency on the data that's even available. When we do find data, it's often cross-sectional, it's missing important details, uh, and very little is up to date. The Maritime Administration uh, used to provide a series of reports surveying U.S. shipbuilding, for instance, and repair facilities, but they have not issued one of these reports since 2004. So tell me how you can do an up-to-date analysis on something like this relatively easily or replicate anything when there isn't the data to help you make that analysis. Now, that huge gap in knowledge, it gets filled by the Jones Act supporters with their own proprietary data that they use to push their cause. And so for us to combat that and to come up with the data to show the opposite of what they're showing uh, takes a lot of work and a lot of rigorous analysis to make that case. But we think that we've done that uh, with our book that's just come out, and I think that there's more yet to be done, and we hope that what we've done so far helps continue that research. Uh, Colin, for people who, let's say they just want to, if they could read but one chapter of the Jones Act book, The Case Against the Jones Act, published uh, by the Cato Institute, uh, what would be that one chapter? And don't don't feel like you have to protect anyone's feelings here. Well, um, back in 2018, Inu and I, along with Dan Eikenson, published a paper that was an overview of the Jones Act that, that is kind of comprehensive look at it from a 30,000 foot perspective, um, looking at, you know, the economic arguments against the Jones Act, uh, the national security arguments in favor of the Jones Act and assessing their validity. And we have a condensed version of that uh, paper can be found in our book. So I think that would make an excellent starting point. Uh, the, the chapters are each written by uh, different scholars, people who have studied uh, the Jones Act. There are costs that are to our immigration system. There are costs to the U.S. shipbuilding capacity, which is really uh, kind of a strange uh, turn of events. Um, and uh, there are environmental costs. What Walk us through a few of those. Sure. Um, so if you want, the last point you raised was about environmental costs. Um, waterborne transport is one of the most environmentally friendly means of transporting goods uh, anywhere, including within the United States, or at least it should be. Uh, but the Jones Act actually uh, discourages the use of this form of transportation by raising costs. And then the vessels, the few vessels that are used, that 2%, uh, these vessels in the Jones Act fleet tend to be older than the international average because they're so expensive to buy. This encourages the use of older vessels that are less efficient and more polluting. 
So uh, if we could shift, you know, just some of uh, the traffic, some of the cargo in the United States from roads, from rail to water, uh, there are substantial environmental gains that, that could be had. In fact, I think uh, in one of the chapters that explores this topic, those gains are pegged at north of $8 billion per year. Uh, potentially. Um, but, you know, you also mentioned, for example, shipbuilding. Well, one of the arguments in favor of the Jones Act is that it assures the United States of a shipbuilding industry that can be harnessed in time of war or national emergency to build new ships. But what, in fact, what's happened is the U.S. shipbuilding industry uh, has atrophied to almost nothing in terms of commercial uh, large ships. And that shouldn't surprise any of us. Uh, when an industry is spared from competition, that makes it uncompetitive almost by definition. When you have an uncompetitive sector, people aren't going to want to use it. They're not going to want to buy their products. And we have effectively protected the sector to death. Uh, and some states pay more than others. Um, did uh, any of your chapters get into the, the specifics of who's paying these additional costs of the Jones Act? Like uh, if I'm shipping something from Kentucky to Indiana, it's not implicated. But if I'm shipping to or from Alaska, to or from Hawaii, to or from Puerto Rico, uh, the implications are much larger uh, with respect to the Jones Act. So w who pays what? Sure. So as you said, uh, the people in the non-contiguous states and territories are going to be the most directly impacted by the Jones Act because they are so dependent on waterborne transportation. Uh, exactly, you know, figuring out what the amount of that burden is, how much extra they pay. There's a lot of debate around that. I think there's no debate that they do pay extra. Uh, nevertheless, there are some clues out there. For example, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York in 2012 put out a study that showed that to send a, uh, a container of household goods from the East Coast of the United States to Puerto Rico costs roughly twice as much as to send that same container to nearby Jamaica or the Dominican Republic. Uh, as Inu mentioned earlier, there was a 1988 study on the Jones Act's impact on Alaska that found the total cost of the Jones Act was equal to about 2% of personal income in the state. Uh, these are, you know, I think that's significant, especially when this is a, a effectively a tax you pay year after year after year. The cumulative impact is considerable. Um, let's not make the mistake of thinking that the Jones Act is a law that only hurts those living in the non-contiguous states and territories. This is very much a law that affects all Americans and is something that all Americans should care about. Uh, just as one example, the U.S. energy industry cannot ship liquefied natural gas to customers in Puerto Rico and even New England uh, due to a lack of appropriate ships designed to carry that product. There are no LNG tankers in the Jones Act fleet. So Puerto Rico must instead turn entirely to foreign sources to buy their uh, liquefied natural gas. So that's lost sales for those uh, in the U.S. mainland. Also, um, you know, this just means higher cost of transportation within the United States. There is, for example, no container uh, shipping along the East Coast. If you want to send something from Boston to Miami or to, on to Texas, you can't do it by water. There are zero Jones Act container ships. So, you know, this, it, it means that Americans have to use alternative, uh, more expensive forms of transportation. And then also the Jones Act is a trade barrier. Uh, the Jones Act is a prohibition against the use of foreign shipping services or even vessels built in other countries, which is extremely unusual. Um, other countries retaliate against the Jones Act. When the United States negotiates trade agreements, uh, they invariably 
uh, keep their markets uh, more closed than would otherwise be the case in order to punish the United States for the Jones Act. So again, this is just a, there, there, there are all sorts of losses. There's the environmental costs. There's the loss sales to, uh, to other parts of the United States. Um, and then, of course, there are lost sales to foreign markets because our trading partners retaliate against us. I was about to ask about imports versus exports. Of course, we need both. Um, but uh, with respect to uh, helping people understand the the minute uh, d- the decision making of individual players in markets uh, inside and outside the United States, let's say I uh, am bringing a ship to Seattle from China, and I'm going to drop goods off in Seattle. Uh, is it the Jones Act that prevents that ship from then going to San Francisco? The Jones Act does not prevent that ship from going to San Francisco. What it does prevent is that ship picking up goods in Seattle and then continuing on to San Francisco and then dropping off those goods. One of the most frustrating aspects of the Jones Act, I think, is that in fact, we have foreign ships that go visit multiple U.S. ports and they will drop off goods that originated from another country and they will pick up goods destined for foreign countries. But what they cannot do is pick up goods in that uh, U.S. port and then drop them off in another U.S. port. This is effectively a conveyor belt along our coast that Americans are prohibited from using. And so foreign uh, ship owners that are in in the business of shipping goods uh, to and from various places, they have to travel with a ship that at points can be largely empty along a U.S. coast. And so that the, those are profits that they can't uh, reap from picking something else up and moving it along the coast. They can't assist Americans in the process of trading with each other. Exactly. Uh, I think that's a great framing. Uh, the Jones Act is typically viewed as a foreign trade barrier, but as much as anything, perhaps even more so, it's a domestic trade barrier. It's, it's, a, it's a barrier that gets in the way of Americans doing business with other Americans. We live in a massive country you know, that, that spans from Maine all the way to Hawaii, and distance is a trade barrier. And that if we were to get rid of the Jones Act, or at least uh, significantly reform it, it would help eliminate, uh, reduce the, these, the, this trade barrier and these distances and reduce the cost and enable Americans to do business with other Americans. Uh, Inu, why should someone in Kansas care about the Jones Act? Well, I think everyone in the United States should care about the Jones Act because the costs uh, are really dispersed throughout the entire country. Uh, when you look at some of the early accounting uh, of the Jones Act, for example, under the Clinton administration, uh, Joseph Stiglitz uh, had basically uh, estimated with the Council of Economic Advisors that every American was basically paying $250,000 for every job so-and-so saved from the Jones Act. Uh, and, and that's an enormous cost that every American pays uh, through their taxes. And, and so this is something that I think everyone should really care about because it affects uh, every business, not just the big guys, but the small guys as well. You look at uh, a one, one story that's told through one of our uh, chapters on um, the dispersed cost of the Jones Act on Hawaiian rum producers. Uh, and you tell the story of Kloa rum, and which we have a video about that as well. You can watch on our website. And and that really shows how a small business owner in Hawaii has really struggled to navigate the challenges of this law and how it's affected his own uh, production. So I think, you know, at the end of the day, this really 
harms all of us in this country. And to, to repeal it would be absolutely the best thing going forward to, to eliminate that burden that we're all facing. Where can people get the Jones Act book? can buy it online on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble, uh, and soon it'll be available uh, on our website uh, for download as well. Inu Monik and Colin Grabo are editors of the new Cato Institute volume, The Case Against the Jones Act, available now. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>